Dr. Glasnov fanned himself with a copy of Geology Monthly. It's a remarkable account, he said. Remarkable, and you discovered this where? In the basement, I said. I was looking for forgotten caves. I thought those old diaries might harbour a few secrets, and I was right. Glasnov gazed out to sea. From our vantage point below the cliffs, at the upper part of the hill, below the coast, we fancied we could see hints of Venice to the west, as well as the Punta Salvore of Istria to the south. Two teams went into the cave, he said slowly. Neither of them came back. It seems to me that there is only one thing to do, Peter. Which is? We will go into this cave. That hardly sounds advisable, I said. We will come back again, said Glasnov. How can you be sure, I said. We have no idea why they didn't make it back. We'll take the drone and oxygen meters and CO2 detectors. My guess is they ran into a CO2 pocket and suffocated. It used to happen all the time. And radon, I said. I heard they measured 30,000 becquerels in a cave in Croatia recently. Only briefly, and that's not nearly enough to kill a person, as you well know. At worst, it'll turn up our immune systems. You know, in my country there are people who deliberately seek out these radioactive caves and go and sit in them. They believe it helps their arthritis. I pulled out a bottle of water from my backpack and took a long gulp. The day was oppressively hot, even at 9am, but astonishingly clear after the previous night's rains. Glasnov had wanted to take some more samples from the cast hill, and I'd been glad of the chance to talk to him about the old diaries. The accounts I'd discovered in an old, well-preserved book in the basement of the Geological Institute were indeed startling and read almost like a novel. They were written entirely in German, evidently by an Austrian scholar. The language was immediate, direct, factual. Around 1843, scholars from the Institute had discovered a new cave after a tree had been torn from the hillside by the borer, the fierce wind that plagues Trieste in the winter months. The tree had left a hole that turned out to burrow deep into the hillside. How deep, they didn't know. They had sent a team of expert cavers to investigate, but as Glasnov pointed out to me, caving at the time was a primitive and amateur effort compared to today. When the team had failed to return, they had agonised over what to do. At first, there had been considerable urgency over the matter, since the team at that point might still have been alive, but helpless, trapped somewhere in the cave system. The Institute had split into two factions. One faction wanted to seal the cave permanently, the other faction was in favour of sending another team, better prepared and with instructions to move only in single file 
roped together and to get out of there at the first sign of trouble. The missing team had consisted of four men and not a one of them had returned alive. There were several different theories as to what had happened. Most of the Institute's academics favoured the idea of a catastrophic cave-in. The ceiling had collapsed, burying the men. There was also the possibility that a collapse had sealed off the return route and the men were still alive, hoping for rescue. Others argued the men had probably been overcome by noxious gases or drowned in an unexpected torrent of water, although there had been no rain for several days. In the end, the decision was made to send a rescue party. The rescue party would consist partly of three more academics who hoped to study the cave further while attempting to rescue the first party and two mining experts who had previously carried out rescues in collapsed mines. The miners were the closest thing that could be found to caving experts in Trieste at the time, since caving did not really exist as a pursuit back then, and most people were of the view that caves were best left alone, unless a source of valuable minerals. Few people were affluent enough to start thinking that risking their necks in caves was a good way to spend what little spare time they had. The rescue party of five men had accordingly lowered themselves with considerable trepidation into the hole three days after the first team had failed to return, and that was the last that was seen of them. Debate at the Institute had then become fierce. Nine men were missing, presumed dead. The Institute staff had been decimated. Wives of the missing men were turning up constantly, with tearful pleas to resume the search with more men. A week went by with no course of action decided upon. Finally, representatives of Ferdinand I himself became involved. His Majesty wishes the cave to be sealed, they decreed, and so it was. The entrance of the cave was filled with earth and a new tree planted over it, a thin sapling that was to become a sturdy oak, later surrounded by black pine. I happened to know that oak tree and had long puzzled over why a solitary oak was to be found in such a place, surrounded by much younger trees. If Glasnov wanted to explore the cave, probably we could carefully dig out the entrance with modern equipment. I doubted whether we'd get official permission from the Institute, but Glasnov and I both knew that much could be accomplished unofficially. We waited till autumn to begin the work. By late October, we had finally unearthed the entrance to the cave. I hadn't fully decided whether I actually wanted to descend into the gaping black hole that we had uncovered, but by then events seemed to have acquired their own momentum. The director of the institute was showing a keen unofficial interest, while also forbidding us to officially go down there, and it seemed too late to back out of the whole thing.
And so it was that on a cool morning in late October, Dr. Glasnov and I made our way unofficially to the Cave of Doom, as I had taken to flippantly calling it, and prepared to descend. Given what had happened previously over a century and a half ago, and considering the extreme danger attendant to entering the cave, we made no arrangement for rescue in the event that we did not return. We would simply disappear without trace. The alternative would have been to do everything officially, and then the director would probably have felt obligated to stop us. Instead, I told the director I was taking a sabbatical with the aim of writing up some research in solitude. I wanted at least a month to thoroughly explore the cave and study our findings, but I didn't mention that to the director. I believe Glasnov gave a similar excuse. I didn't know at the time that Dr. Glasnov's wife had just left him on account of him being virtually an alcoholic taking their children back to Russia with her. He probably felt he had nothing to lose. As for me, I was young and naive, and probably had a vague feeling of being invincible, as is common in young people. We repelled carefully into the Holwood dug. At first we had to squeeze through, but the entrance quickly opened out, into the huge hole below. The floor was around 10 metres from the surface, and once there, a wide corridor led off into the depths of the hill, sloping steeply downwards. Glasnov led the way, checking various metres as he went. The sides of the cave were composed of mostly smooth limestone covered in calcite deposits, built up by a running film of water over millennia. We unfurled a thin rope behind us as we went. It probably wouldn't hold us in an outright fall, but it would stop us if we slipped, and more importantly, it would help us find our way back. I filmed everything with a small camera mounted on my shoulder. At the very least, we were determined not to get lost. The air is fine, announced Glasnov after 15 minutes of treacherous subterranean hiking. Perfectly breathable. Can you see any signs that anyone's been this way before? I asked. Nothing, he said. Me neither, I said. I guessed from the appearance of the sides and the floor of the cave that the dripping water would turn into something far more threatening during rainstorms. And probably all traces of previous expeditions had been washed away. Glasnov hummed to himself as we moved through the cave. Ordinarily, I would have found it annoying, but under the circumstances, it was reassuring. Eventually, we came to a fork and we had to make a decision about which way to go. You might imagine us walking along a level surface in a sort of tunnel with two distinct forks, but it was nothing like that. The cave was full of boulders and weird formations and was rarely level. In parts it got technical and we had to use climbing equipment to traverse dips and ascents. We lighted our way with powerful torches and headlamps, but there were always many dark recesses that we couldn't see into, some of which could easily have concealed entire new routes. 
We were lucky the route wasn't even more confusing than it actually was, but we had reached a point where there were two clear alternative exits from the small chamber we found ourselves in. Right, said Glasnov. We go right, always right. Most people are right-handed. That's the more obvious choice. I wasn't sure if I agreed with his logic, but I didn't have any better idea, so I followed him. The fort turned out to be the first of many. Sometimes the cave branched into three or four separate tunnels. Twice we found one tunnel circled back, and we emerged from the fort we hadn't taken back to where we started. We soon ran out of the thin rope we'd strung along from the entrance and had to switch to thin string. We could go only about a kilometre into the cave before we ran out of line, but it was slow going and we thought we were going to have to turn back before then anyway. Eventually, to our surprise, we did reach the end of the line. We had travelled a kilometre into the hillside with no sign of the vanished men. We were in a chamber about the size of a room in a typical Trieste apartment. The air was still fresh. We can return another time, I said. Look over there, said Glasnov, shining his light over to the left side. There was a sort of narrow hole about the size and height of a doorway, but oval and narrower. What of it, I said. We can't safely go any further. I think I see something, he replied. Turn off your light. I did as he asked, and even before my eyes adjusted to the gloom, I could see there was an unearthly orange light coming from the opening. Some phosphorescent mineral, I said. Some kind of fluorite, maybe. I've never seen anything glow like that, said Glasnov. There's not even any UV in the torch light. We should investigate. We have a strict rule, I protested. We can always return. We'll leave the guideline. It's literally there. It's six meters away at the most. I'm going to look. Take a sample. Why don't we... I began, but it was too late. He was already scrambling over slimy boulders, moving towards the light. True enough, it seemed impossible to lose the end of the guideline from this distance. Resigned, I sat on a rock and waited for Glasnov to report back. I didn't have to wait long. My God! He shouted, and then, again after a pause, more softly. My God! What do you see? I said. You'd better come and look. You won't believe me. I'm not coming till you tell me what's there, I replied obstinately. There was a pause, then he said, Luminous mushrooms, thousands of them. I didn't know Glasnov was a high-functioning alcoholic, but I knew he was partial to a drink. And at that point, I thought he must have overdone it and gone off his head. We were much too deep for mushrooms. Very funny, I said nervously. You'd better come and look, he said. I started clambering over the rocks since, joke or not, he seemed adamant that I had to go there. As I approached the opening, which I've since come to think of as a doorway, 
the glow seemed to brighten and diversify into many different sparkling colours, which from a distance blended into a dull orange. Glasnov was already disappearing into the opening, moving rapidly downwards. When I finally reached the doorway, a sight met my eyes, such as few human beings could ever hope to see, even if they travelled the earth and lived to be a hundred. A vast chamber, the size of a cathedral, filled with brightly shining fungi of dozens of different kinds, bright enough to read by, and leading down to the floor of the chamber, carefully cut steps, painstakingly fashioned, I could only think, by some ancient civilization. The fungi glowed with a thousand different colours, all indescribably sublime. Some shone only with one colour, while in others the gills glowed a different colour to the cap. Some had no gills or cap but only strange fungal forms. Spheres and fingers and curious structures. It was as if the illustrations of a book on fungi had all been jammed together and painted in phosphorescent, saturated colours. The effect was such that I could have stood and stared at it for hours. I've never in my life seen anything so beautiful, so entrancing. A person who has not seen it cannot imagine it. Usually, I can detect mushrooms by their odour from a considerable distance. My friends joke that I have the nose of a truffle dog. Here, there was only a faint, typical fungal odour. Instead, the air smelt of curious essential oils, similar to a herb garden or almost an orangery. Glasnov had already rushed to the bottom of the stairs, where he stood, arms raised, twirling around in wonder. How is this possible? I said, shocked to my core. They must feed on nutrients washed down through the rocks from rains and rivers, he said. The Timavo passes here, the great underground river. But why the luminescence and why mushrooms at all? There's nowhere to disperse spores to. Disperse them they must, replied Glasnov his eyes wide as he took in the incredible sight of the fungatorium. There must be miles of these passages, unless these are the remnants of many great species. Why does any fungus glow? Why does honey fungus glow? Perhaps the light attracts some useful insect or repels predators. Predators, I said, down here? On the fungus, Robert, not on humans. I walked slowly to the foot of the steps. But who built these, I said, gesturing at the staircase, and why? I'm only surprised whoever it was didn't carve a path all the way down here from the entrance, said Glasnov. Or perhaps we entered by the wrong entrance. We had forgotten about the missing men. In our enthusiasm, the fungatorium was to repay us for our carelessness. We decided to spend the night there and part of the next morning. We needed time to document everything. Samples must be taken, 
geological, archaeological and fungal. We needed to at least check whether further fungus-lined passages led off the main chamber. It was as we were tentatively investigating one of these side passages that we made a shocking discovery. We found the rusted frame of a lantern, probably from the mid-19th century to judge by its appearance and construction. Searching carefully, we found further items. A metal snuff box, two belt buckles, the lenses from a pair of spectacles, and a heavily eroded tin can. These items were surely from one of the missing expeditions, but where were the bodies of the men themselves? Why did we find so few items? Glasnov offered a disturbing explanation which I now think likely correct. The fungi had eaten everything organic, even the men's bones, leaving behind only a handful of metal objects, and even those appeared to have been eroded by some acidic process, in spite of their predominantly alkaline conditions in the cave. Not until the next morning did we make our second bizarre discovery. In one of the side passages, daubed on the wall with some dark substance, was a single word, salvezza, salvation. Underneath, an arrow pointed into the darkness of the passageway. Our best idea about it was that it pointed to an alternative exit, but that didn't seem likely, since the passageway led steeply downwards, further into the bowels of the hill. Neither of us particularly wanted to go down there. Around noon the next day, according to our watches, we were ready to leave. As always, Glasnov set off first. He was nearly at the top of the steps when, for no obvious reason, he appeared to stumble and then commence a long slide down the staircase. I had no hope of arresting his descent in those slippery conditions, and all I could do was press myself against the side of the cave, dig in my fingertips, and watch him slide and tumble past. When he reached the bottom, I hurried down. He wasn't dead, thank God, although in retrospect it would have been better if he had died then and there. My ankle, he cried. I pulled up the leg of his waterproof trousers to check his injury. His ankle was badly twisted and was already beginning to swell. Even slight movement caused him enormous pain. How did this happen? I said. It went numb. The whole leg went numb. I must have slept on it badly. As I continued to examine his ankle in the light of the headlamp, I noticed something odd. There was a branching pattern of whitish filaments covering his shin, extending as far as his knee. Look at this, I said, gesturing. In spite of his pain, he managed to get to a sitting position from which he peered at his leg, panting. Suddenly, his complexion visibly paled even in the artificial light. No, he said quietly, and then, no. What is it? Mycelia, he said. 
The fungi have infected my leg. For a moment I was too shocked to say anything. Then I said, are you sure? I spent five years studying fungi in the 1990s, he replied. I recognize my cilia when I see it. Then we have to get you out of here, I said. Don't you see what this means, he said. The fungi can infect human beings. That's why there is no path down here. Probably the steps were used by some sort of isolated priest caste. Perhaps they sacrificed people to the mushrooms. It sounded to me like Glasnov was losing his mind. This was surely no more than fevered rambling. Then we'd better both get out of here as quickly as possible. I can get you to at least the top of the steps, then I'll fetch help. You don't get it, said Glasnov, his voice thick and slow with pain. We can't leave. Neither of us can leave. We can't risk transmitting the infection. You'd better check yourself, see if you've already been infected. Glasnov, I'm getting out of here. If I'm infectious, then they can quarantine me at the hospital. I'm taking you up those steps first, then I'll get help. Glasnov fell back, shaking his head. You cannot leave, he said. Nonsense, I shouted angrily. Look, what about that passageway, the one with salvation written on it? Perhaps this happened to the other men who were down here. Perhaps they found a way out. Ha, said Glasnov. It doesn't mean salvation for us. It means salvation for humanity. We must bury ourselves further in the hillside. Avoid feeding the fungi further. It was then that I noticed something even more horrifying. There was a small mushroom growing out of Glasnov's head at the edge of his bald patch. For a second I thought I was going to be sick, but then I gathered myself and wiped it off with the side of a small pick that I carried in my belt. Glasnov didn't seem to notice. A mushroom always depends on a far more extensive network of mycelial roots so Glasnov's scalp must have been pretty well infected. The grotesque idea also occurred to me that it might be feeding off his brain. If so, no wonder he seemed even weirder than usual. Fortunately, Glasnov was in no shape to carry out whatever plans were forming in his fevered mind and in no shape to resist my plans. I began to drag him by the shoulders up the stairs as gently as I could, ignoring his moans and protestations. We were almost halfway up when he swung at me with a knife he'd unclipped from his belt. You can't leave, he shouted. The knife tore into my trousers but didn't make contact with flesh. As I jumped back, I let go of him and he careered down the steps again. Once there, he remained crumpled in a heap. I made my decision quickly. I turned and trudged wearily back up the steps. I was ready to help an injured Glasnov, but not an injured, delirious, knife-wielding maniac. When I reached the entrance, I felt half dead with exhaustion. In my car, I carefully checked every inch of my skin for infection and found nothing. 
but of course it could have lodged in my lungs or my sinuses. I knew what to do. I headed straight for my holiday home up on the Karst Plateau. The holiday home was really scarcely more than a hut and the location was one that few would have considered for a holiday. I liked it because it gave me a chance to be alone with my thoughts and to investigate the unique pothole geology of the Karst. I had enough supplies in there to last three months if needed. Once I reached the hut, I scrubbed myself all over with diluted bleach. After a month, the police managed to locate me and started questioning me about Glasnov. But by then I figured any infection would have shown itself. I told them Glasnov had set off to explore a cave, I had no idea where, just before I'd left for my sabbatical. They were suspicious but they could prove nothing. Glasnov remains permanently missing. He was a good man, and he was ready to sacrifice himself for the good of humanity. Or perhaps he was just suicidal and deranged. I can never really decide. Whichever of the two it was, he didn't deserve his horrible fate. The thought kept me awake for many nights that perhaps he survived his second fall down the steps. Who knows how long he might have lain there in the chamber of the luminescent fungi, but perhaps there are worse places to die, and he had with him an adequate supply of food, water and cheap grappa to last him several days with me gone, not that I wanted to share the grappa anyway. The nightmares were worse than the guilt. I felt I'd done whatever I reasonably could to save Glasnov, and he in turn had more or less tried to kill me. My conscience was passably clear, but the nightmares came to me nonetheless, the same hideous dream over and over again. A demented, fungus-ridden Glasnov, stumbling down the tunnel marked Salvation, emerging somewhere on the hillside, luminous mushrooms sprouting out of his face and scalp. If you enjoyed this story, please Click the like button and change your name to Fungus O Fungus and devote the rest of your life to studying fungus and eating fungus. It really helps me when you do that.